0: during that first season that that Jackie Robinson was in the league, it was only 11 weeks afterwards that Larry Doby comes into the league and he has an experience that is both similar and quite different than the one that Jackie Robinson has, which sort of shows the, the, you know, the multiplicity of experiences that were happening during this period for pioneering athletes. (laughs)
1: That's Luke Epplin, author of Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series That Changed Baseball. Welcome to Sandlot Social Club. I'm Adam, your host. I play sandlot baseball with the Cap City Cobras in Austin, Texas. Luke's immersive book about the 1948 Cleveland Indians gives readers a front row seat at stadiums and sandlots during a critical and compelling period for baseball and America. It's my favorite kind of historical text, light on analysis, high on story. With great narrative detail, Epland traces the lives of Larry Doby, Bill Veeck, Satchel Paige, and Bob Feller as they criss and cross and eventually propel the Indians to the championship and forever impact the game. We chatted about what drew him to these figures and this team for an episode of Sandlot Recommends. I was hoping you could tell everybody a little bit about your book, Our Team. I've spent a lot of time with it now. Read it once, picked it up again. Last week was digging into it to get ready for this conversation and was reminded of all of the things I love about it, how much it transports you into a time and place in baseball history. It's just so enjoyable to sit there with it on the couch and feel like I'm at the parks, at the games. What is Our Team? What got you interested in this story about the 1948 Cleveland Indians?
0: I grew up in Southern Illinois uh, near St. Louis. My grandfather was 4F during World War II because he had hearing problems. He used to work in an airplane factory in St. Louis. And after his shifts, he would hop streetcars and go to Sportsman's Park, which is where the two Major League Baseball teams in St. Louis played. The St. Louis Cardinals, who are still there and have a storied franchise, always usually pretty great. And the St. Louis Browns, who... uh, we're in St. Louis until the mid-1950s. Then they became the Baltimore Orioles. They were terrible. They only really had one great season. They were sort of known for ineptitude, failure, mediocrity, the whole nine yards. My grandfather loved the Browns. Because he was hard of hearing, it was sort of difficult for me to have a conversation with him. So I would just listen to him talk about the Browns. And anybody who knows anything about the Browns knows that Bill Veck was the last owner of that team. He was the owner up until the time they left St. Louis, and he did some of those most notorious stunts while owner of the Browns. He brought a little person to the plate. He had fans managed from the grandstands. He shot off fireworks. He gave away outrageous gate attractions, all these sorts of things that we now associate with Beck. He was he was sort of in overdrive with the Browns trying to get fans to come to the ballpark. So I was always fascinated by Bill Beck. I had read Vec as in rec as a young kid, and I picked it up again as an adult, and I realized that here is a great figure for a book. It doesn't even have to be a baseball book. He's just a larger than life character. He seems to exist in his own universe almost. He doesn't wear the same clothing as the people around him. He has a very forward thinking mindset. He in some ways is more progressive on baseball than some owners are today. I, I really immediately latched onto him as a, as a figure and I thought that I would write about him through the Browns. But it was only while researching Bill Vack in his earlier tenure, before he owned the Browns, he owned the Cleveland Indians. And I, th- I went in and did some background research just to kind of bring myself up to speed. And that's whenever I started noticing the integration angle with Vec. And while I was going through archives of newspapers and magazines at the time, I kept seeing these other names sort of float to the fore. Bob Feller, Satchel Page, Larry Doby. And I started recognizing that each of these four men, two white, two black, represented a different facet of the integration experience. They all had different worldviews, grown up under different circumstances, and in a way, them coming together was the perfect sort of friction of forces that was happening during integration. So I thought to myself, you could tell a really interesting story about baseball integration, one that isn't commonly told, because the one that is centers almost exclusively on Jackie Robinson, through these four figures and they're coming together and sort of being in tension with one another. So that's that's sort of the germ of how I came to it.
1: What was interesting to me reading this book was the awareness that these narratives were not, you know, one after the other, right? Larry Doby, Satchel Paige, what Bill Veeck was doing, this was all happening alongside the Jackie Robinson narrative and there were a lot of these intertwining narratives when it came to baseball and integration.
0: I think that the way that we celebrate Jackie Robinson Day uh, now, where we designate the day that, of his breakthrough onto the Brooklyn Dodgers. Everybody wears his number. His number is retired across the league. And that becomes a sort of stand-in for integration as a whole. I think that it's very well-deserved, obviously, what he had to go through and, and the, the, the way that he, he handled it. He deserves every accolade that he has. But at the same time, it has a sort of tendency of erasing the other figures and narratives that were concurrent with his own. And so it sort of makes it seem like Jackie Robinson had to sort of come into the league, integrate it, you know, blaze the trail forward and then it was safe for other owners to sort of open it up. But there were there were other owners such as Bill Vack who were thinking of integrating even before Jackie Robinson came into the league. And I think that if Branch Rickey hadn't integrated whenever he did, Bill Vack was going to do it anyway. And so it really does overshadow these other figures like Larry Doby and Satchel Paige and Bill Vack to an extent.
1: You write later in the book that the impact that Larry Doby had on the league um, and the game goes far beyond statistics. Statistics are, are not absent from the book, but they're not a big part of the way that you tell this story. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the methods that you use in terms of your research and the, the stuff that you pulled from to create this story, because it, it's such a textured book. The sights, the sounds of baseball, they're all there.
0: Yeah. Well, my thought process on that was varied. Number one, I, I thought that Larry Doby in particular, as the second black player to break into Major League Baseball in this past century, um, as the first person in the American League, et cetera, he has been relegated to a trivia question that, you know, when we say who is the person that followed Jackie Robinson, the answer is Larry Doby. I think that what that does is that you lose the sort of narrative with him and why his own breakthrough into Major League Baseball was just as meaningful and as exciting and interesting uh, as that. And two, I thought that what, Bill Vec did with that Cleveland Indians club, taking a team that when he bought it in 1946 was in sixth place and pretty uh, down and out and turning it around into a World Series victor within less than two years, primarily doing this by integration, by making these incredible trades and by exciting an entire, not only fan base, but basically the nation. By the time Satchel page comes on the Indians in 1948, the Indians have become sort of the national team. Everybody is, is, is breaking down turnstiles to get in there and see them. So I thought to myself that this narrative itself has been lost. And what I wanted to do with this book was try to tell it as though you were experiencing it. At that time. So the book doesn't veer into a lot of historical analysis. It doesn't veer into a lot of sort of comparison between eras, and it doesn't veer into statistics. I thought to myself that if you want to know what Larry Doby bats in 1948, you can easily go on to Baseball Reference on the internet and find that stuff out. I think that, you know, with the rise of sort of online media and things like that, statistics are there for the plucking. And so I didn't necessarily think to myself that I needed to include a whole bunch of them or even kind of games. Like there's not a lot of sort of depth into uh, individual games. I really just wanted to focus on sort of the larger issues and create a narrative that um, felt immediate and that sort of recaptured why uh, Dobie's entry was significant and what this Cleveland Indians team not only meant, but felt like, why, why, why did they break, uh, the attendance record that stood for quite a long time how did they do that in a town like Cleveland
1: yeah it works really well like I said it feels like time travel you're in the seats at the stadium I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Effa manley she's amazing
0: yeah I think she's one of the most extraordinary figures in in baseball history I, there there really is no no one comparable to her she was somebody who grew up in Philadelphia to a, uh, a mixed-race family her mother was white her father's supposedly was African-American, but there are sort of rumors that she might have been born out of an affair her mother had with a white individual. Either way, she identified as Black and moved to Harlem, met a a numbers runner named Abe Manley, and they bought a team called the Newark Eagles and the uh, Negro National League. Effa Manley had no real sort of background in baseball, but she was a real spark plug. She really fought for certain civil rights initiatives. She was always looking for ventures that would help the cause of integration of Black people, of all these sorts of things. And so she really saw baseball as a point of pride that the Black community in Newark could hang on to. She dove wholeheartedly into running the Newark Eagles and was really the only woman uh, in the Negro Leagues who was doing so and sort of fought her way into league meetings. And she just kind of built that team that would win the Negro League World Series in 1946. And I became so enamored with her that I even talked to my editor about possibly adding her as a fifth main character. I think I wrote an extra sort of 20 to 30 pages on her. You know, the more I learned about her, the more I just couldn't believe that this figure could... Exists. She was also one of the people that, during the time whenever Branch Rickey was signing people for the Dodgers organization, Rickey was not consulting with the owners of the Negro Leagues. He was kind of raiding these clubs and not compensating the Negro Leagues executives or anything. And Effa Manley really stood up to him and and you know made the case for why uh, Negro League owners needed to be compensated for discovering, for developing, for you know helping these players along. Uh, uh, there's really no parallel to her in baseball. She remains the only woman in baseball's Hall of Fame.
1: Will we ever see those 20 pages?
0: Uh, you know, I knew I knew the basic story about the 1948 Indians and I knew the basic story about how Larry Doby came onto the Indians, how Satchel Paige came onto the Indians, how Bob Feller became the amazing sort of player that he is. I didn't know a lot about the Newark Eagles. They were a tremendous club with amazing players like Don Newcomb and Monty Irving and, gosh, you name it, Willie Wells and uh, Ray Dandridge and all these other people. And so whenever I started to research them, I just became really excited about it. In the 1946 season, the Eagles had a team that Effa Manley claimed could have beaten the St. Louis Cardinals, who won the Major League World Series that year. She really believed that they were the better team. And it just so happened for my book that the Eagles... Eagles faced the Kansas City Monarchs in the 1946 Negro League World Series. So you had Doby and Satchel Paige going up against each other. And so I wrote a much longer section that went through each game of that Negro League World Series. And so much of that just ended up on the cutting room floor. There have been some good books written on Effa Manley. One of them came out this year by Andrea Williams, which I highly recommend. I think it's called Baseball's Leading Lady but I think she deserves her own treatment in a book like this that is just sort of told narratively and could capture the excitement and the the spirit and sort of really draw a reader into why she was so important. Yeah.
1: You mentioned Satchel and Larry playing each other in the Negro League World Series. I think one, one of the things I enjoyed about this book was the way that you captured their relationship, these two men, t- totally different generations, roommates, but having a very different approach and a very different experience.
0: Yeah, they were 17 years apart in age. And that was a tremendous barrier between them because they grew up not only at different times, but under sort of different worldviews. So Satchel Page grew up during a time in the, in the deep South. He's from Mobile, Alabama, during a time of sort of extreme segregation, lynching, all these sorts of things. And he comes of age during the Great Depression when the Negro Leagues are kind of in a state of collapse or at least financial dire straits. And so he takes this sort of abilities and talents and things like that and marries them to a persona that excited crowds. It was a persona where he would sort of walk extremely slowly to the mound, do these sort of wild wind-ups that almost look like, you know, cranking an old car or something like that. If the game was in hand, he would do things like call the fielders in or, you know, yell exactly what he was going to pitch and just sort of scoff when batters still couldn't get to it. He really developed that side of his personality in, in such a way that it made him sort of larger than life and allowed him to become basically a one-man franchise during a time whenever a lot of black ballplayers were just struggling to survive. He became someone who was making as much money as a white superstar during the Great Depression. It's a really incredible feat of entrepreneurship and savvy and businessmanship, all these sorts of things that you can think about. With white audiences, they would have sort of looked at this sort of slow walking, sort of deadpan persona and seen sort of a Echoes of Stepan Fetchit, who was a popular screen actor at that time, known for sort of being, you know, mumbly and maybe a bit lazy and things like that. But to Black audiences, also known for outsmarting white people, sort of using that persona to get what he wanted to advance his own needs and things like that. So he was kind of a popular person among Black and white audiences at the time. And Page adapted a persona that could be read as similar to that. And white audiences certainly laughed at that persona. They sort of felt comfort in that persona persona because they read certain negative stereotypes into it. And Page could play it up whenever he needed to. While he then, whenever the batters came to the plate, just mowed them down. Larry Doby grew up at a time where uh, the civil rights movement is, is sort of at its start. He goes to the war and he sort of comes back. And there's this idea that you know integration is imminent and that Black players needed to sort of act dignified and present sort of their, their best side to you know the the white media and things like this and so Dolby constantly used that word dignity dignified this was what he was striving for and he looked at satchel page and that persona that he had cultivated and he saw sort of a stereotype that he was trying to get past and he was embarrassed by it and he really thought that it was a detriment to integration that it perpetuated negative stereotypes about not only black athletes but black individuals overall and that it was bad for baseball. And he was not shy about saying that, about trying to get Satchel Paige to act differently. And Satchel Paige, you can imagine, he's 17 years older than Doby. He's sort of wondering why this little kid is sort of instructing him to do things. You know, even this kid hasn't done anything and Satchel Paige was a superstar. So these two men just simply did not get along, so much so that even at the end of his life in the 1990s, Joby is still giving interviews where he's talking about how Satchel Paige's uh, persona was bad for baseball. He just kind of never gets over it.
1: Are there any people today in baseball or in recent baseball memory that have echoes of these figures in their personalities that you've noticed?
0: It's an interesting sort of thing. Um, Bilvek was somebody who was rich. His father was the president of the, the Chicago Cubs, but he didn't act that way. And he sort of preferred to congregate with this common person. He loved going out to bars and just talking with whoever could, w- was there. He was very much a man of the people. He was also the last of any sort of owner that wasn't just ridiculously wealthy. He was rich, but he wasn't wealthy. And so he he relied on sort of backers to help him buy the clubs. You just don't see that anymore. And so, you know, you even maybe if you look at some, someone like basketball, you could see like Mark Cuban or something like that who strive. To make himself a sort of personality as team owner. But even Cuban is not sort of reinventing the way that a basketball game looks. He's sort of drawing attention to himself. Bill Vec had a purpose to what he was doing. Like he was trying to, you know, break records and excite fans and, and, and get the city to start rooting for the Indians. Like he he was a salesman and he was all these other things. I just don't know if there's any other figure that I can think of. That is like him. Satchel Page is also sort of interesting because I think that, like, he's a legend in a way that we don't have legend anymore. So much of what Satchel Page did was out of the public view because he was playing in these small towns. And so a lot of what was happening with him was passed from, you know, word of mouth, sort of person to person to person. It created a legend. Um, nowadays, everything is just sort of recorded and documented and all these other sorts of things. And so you have somebody who is legendary, such as Mike Trout or something like that. But I don't know mm-hmm. if I'd call Mike Trout a legend the same way that like, Satchel Paige is. Um, yeah. I don't think that a figure like that could exist anymore.
1: There's more certainty for sure all around, less mystery. If if you're good at baseball, you've been good at baseball for a very long time and people have known that you're good at baseball and you've been in development programs. I mean, really any sport. So that contributes to the lack of myth-making. And then at the same time, there's not really a Bob Feller style of like a regional baseball where it's like this person grew up here and played you know, in Iowa and everybody knew him. And so you don't have those figures either because someone like that would be whisked away and put in baseball camp.
0: Yeah, I mean, Bob Feller, whenever he came up in 1936, he wasn't supposed to go down to the Indians, but he injured himself. And so then the Indians had him come. He was a high school junior to Cleveland to sort of rehab. And he was sort of pitching these these starts against an amateur team and just dominating so much. The Indians decided to see what they could do with him during an exhibition game against the St. Louis Cardinals. And he was so unknown to everybody, to the Cardinals, to the fans, to everybody, that the Cardinals on that day literally thought he was somebody that was selling peanuts in the stands and that the Indians were just going to kind of let play in this this (laughs) game. They thought that he was, you know, like a, you know, a a sort of prospect, but to make ends meet, he was a peanut vendor. And so you you can read these sort of interviews where they're just like, who is this peanut guy? You know, that would never happen nowadays. Bob Feller already at that time possessed a hundred plus mile an hour fastball and was like just dominating the competition in the Midwest. And I, I think the parallel would be somebody like Bryce Harper, who was recognized from an extremely early age like you know teenager that this was the guy he was a prodigy and baseball yeah. doesn't have a lot of prodigies you know you sort of go through the sort of rigors of the minor leagues and stuff like that Bryce Harper was the Bob Feller prodigy and I think that just in the way that he sort of plays and even the way he looks like he could be that mythic figure and you know I guess in some ways he is he just won MVP but like I don't know it's 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 slightly different. Like, I think it's just that the sort of narrative that was allowed to develop with Bob Feller, where he just takes the league by surprise and everyone was like, oh my gosh, what is this coming out of Iowa, is absent because we know like ESPN was writing about Bryce Harper when he was a teenager. Even if he does succeed, which he has, it's sort of like, well, this is just the fulfillment of his promise, um, which is not, I'm thinking in terms of writer, not as satisfying narratively as something like what happened with Bob Feller.
1: I did want to talk about the stadium experience that you captured. The stadiums today probably feel very different than they did when people were going to see the games that you were writing about in the 30s and 40s. And I was wondering if you can talk about what that difference is and how those changes occurred.
0: Yeah. So Bill Veck, as I said, grew up as the son of the president of the Chicago Cubs, his father, Bill Veck Sr., was a sports writer who transitioned into the Cubs front office. And the Cubs at that time were owned by William Wrigley of the Wrigley Chewing Gum Corporation. And they were both very forward-thinking, dynamic individuals, him and Bill Vex Sr., who wanted to expand the scope of the sport. And so in the 1920s, and the teens, in the 20s, whenever Bill Vex Sr. is there, a lot of baseball games are just sort of attended by these sort of true fans. And there's this sort of idea that you know, if you do sort of, you know, circus stunts or antics or things like that, that it sort of cheapens the game and that people are just there to see the game themselves. And this sort of attitude extends into just even the way that the stadiums were were maintained. A lot of the times the seats were sort of uh, rickety. They weren't particularly clean places, especially bathrooms, which Bill Vec always thought chased off women. There was a lot of gambling going on. And so it wasn't this sort of like clean corporate experience that you would imagine nowadays William Wrigley and Bill Vick Sr. did a lot to change that attitude they they made sure that everything was clean. William Wrigley supposedly used to go through the stadium and sort of run his gloves alongside certain surfaces to see if any dirt would come off onto them. They brought up the idea of ladies' night, where women could get in for free, trying to get more of these sorts of customers to the game. And they put ushers into very snazzily attired things. And these ushers used to be, you know, you could sort of bribe an usher and say, I want to go to the front row. Here's 20 bucks. And he would take you there. And then the, with the person with the real ticket, the usher would be like, hey, sorry, you you." Got got to go to this other seat. They just made it a more sort of orderly experience. What Bill Veck Jr. did whenever he, he first bought the Milwaukee Brewers, which was a minor league club. And while he used a lot of what his dad did in terms of sort of cleaning up the stadium, fixing broken seats, cleaning up the bathrooms, getting more women to go to the game, he believed that baseball was a theatrical experience that could have room for both competitive play on the field and then sort of entertaining sideshows during dead time. And so he really sort of looked at things between innings, before games, after games, as sort of space where you could put more entertainment, more things that could engage the fans. And at that time, because there wasn't the sort of corporatized like, Now we're going to do the cap dance as the fifth inning. Now we're going to do the the hot dog run as the sixth inning. You know, a stadium nowadays is, is very sort of like orderly with its entertainment. There aren't a lot of surprises that you would see at a stadium. It's sort of the same... Entertainment over and over in certain variations. Bill Vec was just throwing everything he could think of at the stadium. He would have fireworks, he would do quiz shows, he'd have marriage ceremonies, he would, you know, have races. Whatever he could think of, he was he was trying. He would give away outrageous gifts such as cows and chickens and big blocks of ice and stepladders and all these sorts of things. And fans would just get a kick out of all of this. And the fact that like he was inventing it as he went along, fans never knew what he was gonna do. And so they would come to the game sometimes just to see what was gonna happen. And this not only brought in fans that liked baseball, it brought in fans who didn't really care about baseball, but had heard about it or wanted to see it. And then Beck's sort of idea was that these people would see that entertainment, would be sort of amused by it, but then they would be forced to watch the game. And through doing that, he could cultivate an entirely new legion of fan base. People who would never even think about watching baseball are suddenly watching it. And maybe they're learning about it. And maybe they're liking that as well. And so it was this sort of idea that you could sort of make baseball an even more theatrical experience, which got tremendous pushback at the time, because people really thought that Vec was cheapening the game. They thought that he was sort of a a stain on the the national pastime. All of this stuff was beneath baseball. And Vec, in his own mind, thought that baseball was just another form of entertainment and you didn't need to revere it as such that you could sort of keep the integrity on the field, but then sort of think about different ways you can entertain the fans during the dead times. And so, yeah, he was really the person who did this. And so if you go to a game now, even though, as I said, a lot of the entertainment is going to be more sort of a corporate manner where it's the third inning, it's the kiss cam, it's the fourth inning, it's the hot dog race, very sort of, you know, orderly, almost rote things like that that Bill Vec would not have liked. You still see his fingerprints all over the modern stadium experience. Every time a t-shirt is shot into the stands, every time fireworks explode after a home run, you should be thinking of Bill Vec.
1: There's a team in savannah georgia called the savannah bananas and they do some interesting stuff with digital media and skits and things like that they've also made some rule changes to the game and how it's played that reminds me of VEC in its innovation its experimentation I'd wonder if you came to Austin what you would think of the long time where we sometimes play here because that also has echoes of VEC when it comes to you know filling in the space around the game with other things that people might enjoy like the music that they'll play there sometimes or sometimes performance pieces or dance so it's out there in the game, I see these notes of it in places, but it's not part of Major League Baseball at all.
0: I think that's a great point, and I think that I think that you're probably right that if if Bill Vek were around today, and if he were in sort of a similar scenario where he's not ridiculously wealthy or something like that, he would be involved in the game on an independent or a minor league level, where he would be probably more free to pursue his whims and his experiments and his vision.
1: Thanks, Luke, for coming on the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can find a link to grab a copy of Our Team in the show notes. It's a really fun read. I'd also love to hear from you if you've stumbled upon something baseball y you recommend. So send a message to Sandlot Social Club Podcast at gmail.com if you're so inclined, or follow us on Instagram at sandlotsocialclubpodcast and head first slide into our DMs. Other than that, Go forth. The Vecchian. It does kind of have this Vecchian spirit. Is that, can I, is Vecchian a word? Vecchian, can yeah, it a word? yeah, okay, yeah. let's do it.